The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. Not hard to find. Genesis chapter 1. That's easy, isn't it? Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing to spend this time together worshiping you. What a sweet time that was. And what a sweet Savior you are. What a blessing to know you. We thank you for your faithfulness, your loving kindness. We thank you for this church and all that you've done in this place over the years and all the faithful servants here, God, we pray that you would continue to do great things here. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to the scriptures, we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts, that you would teach us and encourage us in the faith, that we might leave here with a better understanding of what your word says and just how trustworthy it really is. So bless this time we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this evening, I'd like to talk to you about the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. I'd love for us to look at some passages in the Bible where the biblical writers revealed amazing facts about the earth and the universe thousands of years before the invention of telescopes, microscopes, deep diving submarines, and all of the other technology that's finally allowed us to verify that these declarations were true. We believe that this is compelling evidence that biblical writers had encounters with God wherein he not only revealed himself to them, but also revealed insights about creation that were not known at the time. So we'll look at some of these revelations this evening. My hope and my prayer is that this will leave you tonight with an increased confidence in the trustworthiness of the Bible, but that our time together will also help equip you with some interesting facts and details about the Bible that you might be able to bring up in future conversations with skeptics and co-workers, friends, and family members who uh, don't have quite the same view of the Bible as you do. We'll start by considering what the Bible said about the start of the universe. If you're a note taker, number one, the start of the universe. Notice with me there in your Bibles, the very first verse, Genesis chapter one, verse one, Moses wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible makes it clear here, right out the gate, in the very first verse, that the universe had a beginning. Well, this went against the prevailing views in Moses' day around 1500 BC. Most of the ancient world, including the Egyptians at the time of Moses, believed that the universe was eternal, uncreated, just there. Now, this is not to suggest that the ancients didn't believe in gods. They believed in lots of different deities, but they believed their deities moved around in and operated inside a universe that had just always existed throughout eternity. And up to the 20th century, the widely accepted view in scientific circles was that the ancients were right about the universe. The universe is just there, they said, like it's always been, it did not have a beginning. Well, that view has finally fallen on hard times. Scientific evidence discovered in the 20th century demolished this view. The cosmic background radiation echo, the second law of thermodynamics, and the motion of the galaxies have led astronomers to conclude that the universe actually had a beginning, just like the Bible had indicated 3,500 years ago when Moses penned these words in Genesis chapter 1. 
Arnold Penzias, an astrophysicist who was awarded a Nobel Prize for discovering some of the evidence that the universe had a beginning, agrees that the scientific data lines right up with the Bible. In an interview in the New York Times, Arnold Penzias said this. He said, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole, end quote. So score one for the Bible right there in the very first verse. If you're taking notes, that was number one, the start of the universe. Let's consider another section of scripture that speaks of number two, the stretching out of the universe. The stretching out of the universe. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. There on the screen is an artist's depiction of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, up until the 20th century, scientists believed that the Milky Way galaxy was the universe. They had no idea that there were other galaxies outside of the Milky Way galaxy, and they certainly didn't know that the universe was expanding or stretching out. Well, that all changed in the 1920s when an American astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble discovered other galaxies and that the universe was expanding. Using the most advanced telescope in the world at the time, located at the Mount Wilson Observatory there in Los Angeles, Hubble discovered that there were other galaxies outside of the Milky Way and that these other galaxies were moving further and further apart from each other, that the universe was literally expanding or stretching out. What a discovery this was. It revolutionized our understanding of the universe. But you know, the Bible actually mentioned this long before the telescope was even invented. There in your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 40, At the end of verse 22, written around 700 BC, Isaiah speaks of God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. For those of you who have ever gone tent camping, you know what it's like when you pull up to your campsite and pull your tent out of your trunk and plop it down there on the ground. What's next? Well, stretching it out, right? You have to stretch it out in all of the different directions. Well, Isaiah uses that stretching out of a tent as an analogy to describe what's happening with the universe. God is stretching it out. The book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8, mentions this as well. It says there that God stretches out the heavens. So these two verses indicate that the universe has expanded since the time of its initial creation in Genesis chapter 1. Now, some of you might be wondering, why would God stretch out the heavens? Well, we don't know for sure. Some scientists have theorized that God may have set the universe in expansion mode for stability. If the clusters of galaxies weren't moving apart from each other, gravity might cause the universe to begin to collapse back on itself. We can ask God uh, about that someday in heaven. But this leaves us with a question. How in the world could Isaiah and Job have known that the universe was expanding? There were no telescopes. Back then, Galileo was the first person to point a telescope to the stars, and that didn't happen until 1608. And when one looks up at the heavens from here on earth, the universe doesn't appear to be expanding. And yet Isaiah in the book of Job declared that God stretches out the heavens. Amazing. 
Now, the skeptic says, hold on a second here, Charlie. These kinds of details were probably just inserted into the Bible after the discoveries were made. You know, to make the Bible appear as though it had these great insights. Surprisingly, some critics use this line of reasoning to excuse these kinds of statements in the Bible. Well, in response to this objection, we know that these verses weren't added to the Bible after the discoveries because surviving manuscript copies of the Bible that are more than 2,000 years old have all the verses in them that we're looking at tonight. In fact, right there on the screen for you is a photograph of an ancient scroll of the book of Isaiah. It was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls unearthed in Israel 70 years ago. This scroll there on the screen is approximately 2,100 years old. And it's opened to the very place we're at in our Bibles right now. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22 there in the ancient Hebrew text says the exact same thing that our Bibles say today. That God stretches out the heavens, proving there wasn't anything inserted into the Bible, you know, thousands of years later after these modern discoveries were made. And hundreds of other ancient manuscript copies of the Bible verify the same thing regarding all of the passages we'll be looking at here this evening. Now, while we're still on the topic of the cosmos, there's a third area the Bible beat modern scientists to the truth. This one has to do with number three, the stars. The stars. Before the invention of the telescope, people believed that the stars could all be numbered. People were so confident of this, they drew up star charts like this, and then they made long lists with all of the stars named and numbered. The Greek astronomer and mathematician by the name of Hipparchus, about a century before Jesus was born, claimed that there were 1,026 stars. 200 years later, the astronomer and mathematician Ptolemy brought the count up by 30. 1,056 stars. That was the prevailing view for the next 1,300 years or so until the German astronomer Johannes Kepler brought the count down to 1,005 stars. Well, all of these counts got thrown out the window when the telescope was finally invented. When Galileo, a devout Christian, pointed this telescope to the heavens in 1608, he discovered that these previous counts were way off and that the Bible was actually right. What had the Bible said regarding the matter? Well, if you're a note taker, jot it down. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 22. God declared in that verse that the host of heaven, a way of referring to the stars, cannot be numbered nor the sand of the sea measured. God says here that the stars cannot be numbered. In fact, trying to do so would be about as futile as trying to count the grains of sand floating around in the sea. Obviously an impossible task. Jeremiah wrote that more than 2,000 years before Galileo made his discovery. Today, with the help of powerful telescopes, astronomers estimate that the universe contains approximately two trillion, not stars, just galaxies containing anywhere between 100 billion and 10 trillion stars each. Far too many stars for us to ever count. Jeremiah declared that to be the case because the God who created the stars revealed that to him. Incredible. What else did the biblical writers get right? Well, if you're a note taker, jot it down. Number four, facts about the sun. Facts about the sun. In ancient Egypt, the sun was worshipped as a deity named Re, commonly mispronounced today as Ra. 
whom the people thought majestically sailed around the sky every day in his fiery boat on his daily visits to the upper and lower worlds. Evidence of sun worship in the ancient world has been found in a variety of places. Well, you may recall that Moses himself was born and raised in ancient sun-worshipping Egypt, even educated in their schools, the Bible indicates. But after an encounter with the true and living God, Moses went against the prevailing view of the day and declared in the opening chapter of Genesis that the sun wasn't a god, but just a creation of God made to provide earth with light and to help measure the passing of time. Now, that surely would have resulted in a death sentence in ancient Egypt, but Moses, of course, had already left Egypt when he encountered God and began uh, figuring out and learning these kinds of details. But, of course, Moses was right, wasn't he? And when the telescope was finally invented thousands of years later, astronomers were able to finally prove to people that the sun is not a deity flying across the sky every day in his fiery boat, but just an enormous star millions of miles away from the earth. But 400 years after Moses died, While much of the ancient world was still bowing down to and worshiping the sun, David wrote this about the sun in Psalm chapter 19, verse 6. Speaking of the sun, he said, Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. David wrote that about 3,000 years ago. Well, for years, modern critics of the Bible laughed at this verse, thinking that David had made an enormous mistake. They thought David here was espousing a geocentric view of the universe, suggesting that the sun actually revolves around the earth. Well, if you carefully reread the verse, he doesn't even mention the earth. He just says the sun's on a circuit through the heavens. But they thought he was describing this outdated view of the universe. So they said, well, this is ridiculous. The sun doesn't go anywhere. It's stationary. It's the earth that moves around the sun. But with the advent of powerful telescopes, we've now discovered that the sun actually does move. It's traveling about 515,000 miles an hour on a circuit through the heavens as it makes its way around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. All in perfect harmony with Psalm 19, verse 6, where David said the sun was on a circuit from one end of the heavens to the other. Amazing. Not only did the biblical writers speak correctly about the universe, the stars, the sun, they spoke with amazing accuracy and foresight about the earth. And this brings us to a fifth point I'd like to briefly discuss. Number five, the shape of the earth. The ancient Egyptians and Babylonians are on the historical record for having believed that the earth was flat. For a long time, people thought the earth was flat, shaped like a disc, and surrounded by a large river of water that they called Oceanus. It was believed that anyone foolish enough to sail through the Pillars of Hercules, now known as the Strait of Gibraltar, would fall off the earth into nothingness. And some critics of the Bible today say that the Bible agreed with some of these ancient flat earth views. Critics of the scriptures like to point to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, where John speaks of four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Critics claim that this verse clearly indicates that the earth is flat with four literal corners. 
Well, they're quite mistaken about the matter. The critics overlooked the fact that John was simply using a well-known figure of speech to describe the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, and we still use that same figure of speech today. The Bible had already indicated that the earth was round centuries before John penned the book of Revelation, and I think it's reasonable to think John would have been familiar with these passages. For example, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 22, we're told that God sits above the flat, four-cornered earth. Is that what it says? Uh, I misread it. No, he sits above the circle of the earth. From space, the earth has a circular shape to it, doesn't it? How would Isaiah have known that? He lived during a period when Persian astronomers were convinced the earth was flat and centuries before the Greeks figured out that the earth was round. So how did Isaiah know that? Well, maybe he read the book of Job. More than a thousand years before Isaiah declared those words, the book of Job told us that God has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Well, that's fascinating. Let me break it down for you what Job just indicated. Job says that God has drawn a circle, where? On the surface of the waters, a reference to the oceans, at the boundary, he says, of light and darkness. This boundary between light and darkness is where evening and morning occur. But notice the boundary is not a square or a triangle. It's a circle. Why is that? Well, because the earth is round. That's amazing accuracy and foresight for a book that's about 4,000 years old. How about number six, the suspension of the earth? The suspension of the earth. What am I talking about? Well, ancient Hindus believe the earth rested on the backs of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle. That's some turtle. There were all kinds of theories in the ancient world. Something has to hold the earth up, people assumed. But what did the Bible say regarding the matter? Well, again, in one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job said this in Job chapter 26, verse 7. He said that God stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. No turtles. No elephants. He just, in other words, the earth hangs completely unattached in space. Now, we have pictures now of the earth taken from space that show that this is indeed the case. But how would Job have known this 4,000 years ago before the invention of rockets and satellites and telescopes and such technology? Well, of course, we know he had insight from the creator. That's how he knew that. All right, let's consider a few more. How about number seven, the second law of thermodynamics? The second law of thermodynamics, what am I talking about? Well, in Psalm 102, the psalmist writes this. I'll put it on the screen for you. In verse 25 and following, he says, Of old, you, you God, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. The Bible reveals two and a half, maybe 3,000 or so years ago that the universe and the earth are like a garment, like a robe that is wearing out and that will one day even pass away. Do you have a bathrobe maybe hanging in your closet or a sweater? You've had that thing for five years, 10 years. Who are we kidding? Some of you have had that sweater for like 20 years and it shows visible evidence of wearing out. Threads are hanging from it, buttons are missing, but you can't bear to part with it. It's sentimental, it's one of the comfiest things in your closet, but there's physical proof that this thing is wearing out. Well, the Bible tells us that's what's happening. 
to the earth and the universe. They're wearing out, growing old, running down. Now, this seems obvious to us today, but the prevailing view at the time that Psalm 102 was written was that the universe was eternal. And people who believed that would have laughed at Psalm 102. Why is that? Well, because things that are eternal don't wear out. Anything that's managed to have existed forever has to have been self-sustaining. But along comes the author of this psalm and he says, no, uh, the earth and the heavens are actually wearing out. They're running down. They're, they're deteriorating. And so some thoughtful people surely wondered who's right. The philosophers like Aristotle, who assures us that the universe is self-sustaining and not wearing out, or this ancient Hebrew guy who pinned the, the 102nd Psalm. Well, 2,000 years later, scientists would finally discover something about the universe that would help settle the debate. In the 19th century, two physicists, William Thompson and Rudolf Clausius, discovered that the amount of usable energy in the universe is decreasing. In other words, everything in the universe is running down, deteriorating, and becoming less and less orderly. They formulated this discovery into a scientific law, and it's called today the second law of thermodynamics. This law is one of the most well-tested, well-established scientific laws known to man. Harvard scientist John Ross says there are no known violations of the second law of thermodynamics. None. In other words, everywhere we dig, everywhere we look in the universe, we have discovered that the second law of thermodynamics is firmly entrenched and in full operation. Not a single violation ever discovered. Friends, this reality that the universe is wearing out running out of usable energy, wasn't understood, wasn't discovered by scientists until the mid-1800s, more than 2,000 years after the Bible revealed this to be the case. Amazing. Once again, the Bible was found to be trustworthy. How about number eight, the source of water? The source of water... Several thousand years ago, the ancients observed enormous rivers flowing into the ocean, but they couldn't figure out why the oceans never overflowed or why the sea level never rose. The source of rainwater was a complete mystery to them. Well, it wasn't until Leonardo da Vinci and European scientists Pierre Perrault and Edma Marriott in the 17th century that the Earth's water cycle began to be understood in an accurate and detailed way. The observations of these scientists eventually led to the understanding that rain clouds developed from evaporation of ocean water, followed by atmospheric transportation and then precipitation. So scientists finally began to figure those things out about three, four, five hundred years ago, but had they read the Bible, scientists might have figured this out much sooner. Nearly 3,000 years before the hydrological cycle was discovered, Solomon wrote these words in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 7. He said, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come... There they flow again. Well, this is astonishing. Let me break it down for you. Solomon understood that the sea down here is the source of the water up here that's flowing down the mountain into the sea. Notice the verse again. He states that the sea is the place from which the rivers originate. And there they flow again. 
Other places, this was spoken about in the Bible, Job 36, verse 27 and 28. It says there that God draws up drops of water. He seems to be describing what we call evaporation, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. And one other place, Amos 9, verse 6, alluded to the water cycle as well. About 2,700 years ago, it says there that God calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Remarkable. How did Amos, Job, and Solomon know the source of rainwater is oceanic evaporation? When we reflect upon the fact that scientists didn't discover this to be the case until 3,000 years later, these biblical passages are truly astounding. We believe that they had help, insight from our creator. While we're talking about water, let's discuss another one of these. Uh, Number nine, springs in the ocean. Springs in the ocean. As you probably learned in high school, 70% of the Earth's surface is covered with ocean water that is incredibly deep, nearly seven miles deep, we've, dis- we've discovered in some places. Much of the ocean floor away from the shoreline lies in total darkness. Three tons per square inch pressure at the ocean floor makes exploring most of the ocean floor an impossible task apart from modern research submarines. We've been reminded of that, haven't we, in the last week with the attempt to view the Titanic and what happened to that submersible tragic. But it, it, the thing was crushed by the weight Three, can you imagine 3,000 pounds per square inch pressure? I mean, I drop a, you know, maybe a 10-pound weight on my toe. It's like agony. 3,000 pounds per square inch pressure at the bottom of the ocean floor. So then, in light of that, I think it's reasonable to assume that none of the biblical writers ever explored the deep ocean floor. Does that seem reasonable to you? I think so. And yet, some 4,000 years ago, the book of Job said that there are underwater springs at the bottom of the ocean. God revealed this to Job directly in Job chapter 38, verse 16, when he asked Job this question. He said, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? In other words, Job, Job, have you ever explored the bottom of the ocean? Have you ever seen the the canyons I put there? Have you seen the springs of water down there that unleash water into the ocean? Now, the obvious answer was no. No, Lord. Job had never explored the bottom of the ocean, and neither had any human. The technology was not around. They didn't even have aqua lungs. (laughs) back then, let alone submarines. So the book of Job mentions these springs of the sea, and the book of Genesis spoke of them as well. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, when Moses describes what brought on the flood, he says that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So notice that the the flood was not the result of just 40 days of rain falling. Genesis 7 verse 11 says the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And of course, that unleashed a lot more water onto the planet. Now, some people back in Moses's and Job's day must have thought these guys are crazy. How could they know what's going on at the bottom of the ocean? But now... More than 3,000 years after Moses and Job spoke of these deep sea fountains, we've discovered that they were right all along. With the help of a deep diving research submarine built to withstand the three tons per square inch pressure at the ocean floor, deep sea springs and fountains were finally observed for the first time at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in 1970. Here on the screen, you can see a photograph 
of some of these springs. The underwater springs spew out boiling hot up to 750 degree mineral laden water from what scientists call chimneys that are up to 15 feet tall atop mounds of minerals up to 60 feet high. Isn't that fascinating? Fountains and springs at the bottom of the ocean, just like Moses said all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. Amazing. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider a tenth and final example of the Bible's amazing accuracy and foresight. This one concerns sea paths. Sea paths, why don't you turn with me one last time in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm chapter 8. I'll put it on the screen for you, but I think it'd be good for you to see it in your own Bible. You've probably read Psalm 8 yourself, maybe several times, and a lot of Christians say, I never even noticed what I'm about to point out to you. Psalm chapter 8. This is a beautiful psalm, one of my favorites. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 3 and following. David penned these words. He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Or some translations say care for him. You know, why would you even care about us? We're so small. Verse 5, for you have made him, you've made humans a a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. How excellent indeed. Beautiful words there by David. But let me draw your attention back to verse 8. David says the fish of the sea pass through the paths of the seas. That's interesting. David indicates here in the Bible that the sea has paths. A path is a course or, or route where something travels. So David says here that the sea has paths. It has courses that the ocean water follows. Now, had people carefully considered David's words 3,000 years ago, they might have wondered what in the world he was talking about. Why? Well, in ancient times, very little was known about the seas and the oceans. The only seas that ancient Hebrews had firsthand knowledge of were the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea. The Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee are really just large inland lakes, but none of these bodies of water possess significant observable currents. And for about 2,800 years, David's words about the seas having paths went untested and unverified, at least in any way that historians are familiar with. Well, that all changed in the 19th century with a man by the name of Matthew Murray. Matthew Murray was an astronomer, a geologist, a meteorologist, and the head of the United States Navy's Department of Charts and Instruments. He was very bright, and he was also a Christian. One day, when he was lying in bed, very sick, he asked his daughter to uh, read the Bible to him. And she obliged, and she flipped open the Bible and landed right where we're at right now, Psalm chapter 8. And she read Psalm chapter 8 to her father, who thought he may be dying with a terminal illness. But when she read that phrase there in verse 8, the paths of the seas, those words struck this Navy man. He was the one who was in charge of all of the U.S. Navy's maps. And Mari told his daughter, if God says the paths of the sea, they are there. And if I ever get out of this bed, I will find them. Well, Matthew Mari 
did recover from that illness and finding the paths and the seas was the very thing Matthew Murray set out to do. After years of extensive research, which included deep sea soundings, tracking bottles that had been released into the ocean and an examination of thousands of dusty old ship logs, Murray discovered that the ocean water followed certain predictable paths. Two of the better paths or currents are the Gulf Stream on the East Coast and the California Current here on the West Coast. For example, the water in the Gulf of Mexico flows around the tip of Florida and then follows a path 40 miles wide and 2,000 feet deep flowing all the way up the East Coast before hanging a right and going all the way across the Atlantic Ocean over to Western Europe. The California Current brings cold water south from Alaska down along the California coast. This is one of the reasons why we have such great weather here in Southern California. All of those hurricanes that start brewing off the coast of Mexico and they're drifting north, they always dissipate. Why is that? They run into the California Current, the cold water. You need warm water for a hurricane to continue to generate energy. They run into that cold water and they vanished. Do you know as far as recorded history goes, a hurricane has never made landfall here in Southern California. So we're thankful for that, but we also have cold water. You go to the East Coast during the summer, you're amazed. I mean, the water's like 80 degrees. You know, it still hovers around 70, maybe the high 60s here. Well, Mari published a book on his remarkable discovery in 1855 and encouraged sailors to start using these paths these currents in the sea to increase efficiency and decrease the number of accidents. Well, his discovery of the ocean currents revolutionized the shipping industry, for as you can imagine, it's far more efficient to sail with a current than to go against one. And so his recommendations began cutting sailing times by months for some journeys and began saving shipping uh, industry, you know, shipping companies, millions of dollars a year in shipping expenses. Today, in Matthew Murray's home state of Virginia, they have a large statue of him erected with this uh, plaque, th- these words on the plaque. It says, Matthew Fontaine Murray, Pathfinder of the Seas, the genius who first snatched from ocean and atmosphere the secret of their laws. Every mariner for countless ages as he takes his chart to shape his course across the seas will think of thee. His inspiration, the plaque says, Matthew Murray's inspiration, holy writ, holy scripture, Psalm 8, verse 8, and a couple of other verses that inspired him. What an incredible discovery this man made. He is known today as the father of oceanography. But what I find even more incredible is that 2,800 years before Matthew Murray made this discovery, David revealed to us that there were paths in the seas. Friends, these kinds of declarations in the scriptures are compelling evidence that the men who wrote the books of the Bible were being guided by the creator of the universe. And that's precisely what the Bible indicates in verses like 2 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 21, it says that men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They weren't taking wild guesses. The God who knows all there is to know about the earth and the universe that he created, he came alongside these men. He superintended the writing of Scripture to make sure that what these men penned accurately reflected the way things really are. And because that is the case, you can read the Bible today with the highest degree of confidence. And I hope that you will. But friend, if you're a visitor here tonight, or maybe new to reading the Bible I feel it important to point out to you that this book is not primarily about the stars, the solar system, or the shape of the earth. The biblical writers spoke a bit about these things in passing. The primary message in this book is about mankind's savior, Jesus. 
For you see, humans have been separated, the Bible says, from a relationship with God because of our sins. Without a remedy to that situation, the Bible says that we would all face the righteous judgment of a holy God for our sins and end up in hell. Thankfully, though, that doesn't have to happen. Because this same God who is holy and just and who hates sin is also merciful and loving. And he determined that he would pour out the judgment you deserve and I deserve for our sins on himself. How awesome is that? That's what was happening when Jesus hung on that cruel wooden Roman cross. He was receiving the the punishment we deserve for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. And three days after that agonizing death on the cross, he rose from the grave. And now today he's offering all humanity the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the free gift of everlasting life in his eternal kingdom. What a gracious offer God has made humanity. Everlasting life, forgiveness of all your sins, peace with God. We deserve judgment and and condemnation. But God says, actually, I've got something way better for you. And I paid the price for it. And it's a free gift. That's how it's described in the Bible. A free gift. How do you lay hold of it then? Well, let God answer that question. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. He said, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Look at that. It's so simple. God's done all the work. He's not asking you to do anything except turn to him to save you. In other words, trust in him. Place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Jesus himself said, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God's done all the work. He just wants you now to place your faith in Jesus. And your sins can be washed away. And you can do that tonight. God's a prayer away. You can pray before you walk out of these doors and just say something like, God, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Please forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off. Lay hold of that gift tonight. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, may you continue in the faith, picking up and meditating on God's word on a regular basis, knowing that this book is trustworthy from cover to cover, even in the fine details. Even in that little phrase, paths of the seas, that you've read over 10 times. Down to the jot and the tittle, Jesus said, every every word can be taken to the bank and be trusted. God is faithful to his word. Amen? Amen. Well, we covered a lot there tonight. I hope it was helpful to you. If you'd like to go a little bit deeper, most of what I shared with you in tonight's presentation is pulled out of my book called Scrolls and Stones. We've got some copies of that out in the foyer. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into evidence for the Bible, um, that book lays out 10 different lines of evidence for the Bible. Tonight's presentation was one of those. So there's a whole chapter in the book dealing with what we talked about tonight. But then the book will take you a little deeper. If you'd like to even go deeper than that, I also brought some copies of my updated book, Archaeological Evidence for the Bible. It's got more than 100 color photographs in it of archaeological discoveries that verify details in the Bible. And then um, also in the the last couple of years, God's really put young people on my heart. I know a lot of young teenagers today are not going to pick up a book like that 
Um, they look, that book looks, uh, looks like you need to do a book report on it or something. But I thought, you know, this, this kind of evidence for the Bible is so important for us to pass on to the younger generation. And I thought, well, how can I do that? What, what kind of book, Lord, can I write that they would want to read, that would be fun to read? And I think God gave me the idea to start writing novels, fictional stories, fast-paced, action-packed, thrilling novels with car chases and bad guys and all kinds of fun stuff to read about that revolve around, though, teenage characters. And I thought, well, if I wrote a book like that, it would actually be fun for them to read. Maybe they would read it. And so that's what I've been doing for the last year or two, focusing on writing books for the teenagers in your life. Maybe you have a young granddaughter or grandson, you're wishing they would walk with the Lord or believe the Bible. Uh, This might be a good book to put into their hands. Um, Part one there on the left, and then it's a series, part two and part three. But I lay out evidence for the Bible inside fun-to-read stories for teenagers. So if you've got some teens in your life, I thought I would point those out for you as well. Let's go ahead and pray, and I believe the worship team is going to come up and lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father, God, what a blessing to open up your word together. God, we thank you for your word. And God, we're thankful for these amazing declarations in the scriptures that have now been verified by scientists thousands of years later. What an encouraging reminder to us that um, our faith as Christians isn't rooted and grounded in wishful thinking, but our faith is truly grounded in the truth, the truth of your word. So Lord, we're thankful for that. We do pray, God, that you would give us a renewed hunger and thirst to read the scriptures and to walk in its light and to obey you and live lives that are glorifying and pleasing to you. We pray that you would empower us to do that, God, and to also to get the gospel out. Lord, we don't want to just Uh, know all of this information and and keep it to ourselves, Lord. We want to be bright, shining lights in our community, our workplace, our neighborhoods, within our sphere of influence. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would lead us and guide us in that and that you would use us for the spread of the gospel in this generation. We love you, God. Bless this, uh, this night as we head home. We pray for a safe drive for everybody. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.